We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today's episode features Walter Isaacson, the best-selling author of books including Leonardo da Vinci, Einstein and Steve Jobs. Well, this time he came to Intelligence Squared to discuss his new biography of Jennifer Doudna and in conversation with Dr. Goody Singh, they discussed the current revolution in gene editing and the future of the human race. It's a really fascinating conversation, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Walter's book in the podcast description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. Well, hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with me, Dr. Goody Singh. I'm delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Walter Isaacson, Professor of History at Tulane University and previously CEO of the Aspen Institute, Chair of CNN and Editor of Time magazine. He is the author of many biographies, including those of Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, and adding to that list now his new book, The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. So let's begin, Walter. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for doing it. And uh, I love being back at Intelligence Squared. Well, it's a real pleasure. And it's been a real pleasure to read your book, I have to say. You've written biographies, as I've just mentioned, of some of history's most consequential figures. So people as varied as Leonardo da Vinci, Henry Kissinger, and even Steve Jobs. Why did you want to write about Jennifer Doudna? And how consequential a figure is she? Well, when I was writing about the digital revolution and doing it with Steve Jobs, I was amazed at how much it had transformed our lives. I mean, here I am with my iPhone and, you know, all the things that can be built upon that platform. And then I realized that that was the last half of the 20th century. The first half of this century is really going to be about the biotech revolution, and especially about being able to use messenger RNA to create vaccines or guide RNA to be able to edit our genes wherever we decide we want to. And I think that's going to be a whole lot more consequential than even the iPhone. And so I was looking for a way to do all the cast of characters who have led us through this gene editing revolution, this vaccine revolution. And the more I got to know Jennifer Doudna, who really started work by reading about DNA and the double helix, then discovers the structure of RNA, the way that Watson and Crick did the structure of DNA, and then how she gets involved both in gene editing and then with coronavirus. 
And like you, she's very concerned with the bioethical issues. So she's been a leader in that field. So she became the central narrative character in my book because she really ties together everything. And not incidentally, she's a really interesting person. Well, that's amazing and a great introduction to the book. Now, for those who may not be familiar, Doudna is best known for discovering gene editing technology known as CRISPR. And in 2020, she won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry with her colleague Emmanuel Charpentier for this work. Now, Walter, I wonder if you'd be able to explain to the audience what CRISPR is and just why it's so revolutionary for modern science and medicine. Yes, it's actually not revolutionary for the rest of the animal kingdom because bacteria have been using CRISPR for more than a billion years. And what it is is a system they use to take a mugshot every time a virus attacks them. And then if that virus attacks again, they have a little bit of the DNA sequence of that virus and they use a scissors, an enzyme, to chop it up. What Jennifer Dowden and Emmanuel Charpentier discovered in 2012 is that you can reprogram this system. If it can cut DNA in a, for a bacteria trying to fend off a virus, we can reprogram it so we can edit our own DNA. So it becomes an easily reprogrammable tool to cut our DNA and eventually to put in new genes where we've cut out old ones. So... Let's go to the book now, because I was really interested in Jennifer's story herself. As a woman in science myself, I was really intrigued by her as a character. And you mention in the book how in her sixth grade, her dad leaves a copy of The Double Helix, who's by James Watson. And James Watson was one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, as you just mentioned. Can you tell us a little bit more about Doudna's journey and how she got into science? Well, she thought it was a detective story when her dad left it on her bed. And when she picks it up on a rainy Saturday, she realizes that in some ways she was right. It is this uh, detective hunt for the secrets of life. And she reads it and she notices in it a wonderful character, and I know you're very familiar with her, Rosalind Franklin, who's treated a bit condescendingly by Dr. Watson, who wrote the book, calls her Rosie which Dr. Yeah, Rosalind Franklin never used for herself, but she realizes that she has done the imaging work that allows Watson and Crick to discover the double helix. And what Jennifer Doudna you know, realizes is women can be scientists. She said up until then, she'd never thought about that. So she told her school guidance council when she was in school uh, in Hilo, Hawaii, some tiny village in Hawaii, that she wanted to become a scientist. And he said, no, girls don't do science. And that caused her to persist. And she really decided she was going to do chemistry and biology. And she becomes a great scientist who discovers the structures of RNA in sort of the same way as Watson and Crick did for DNA. And, so, you know, one of the themes that really does come through in your book is this idea about women in science. And as you just say, they're so often written out of scientific discoveries. And, you know, I, again, as a woman in science myself, I think it is important to underline this fact for the audience. You know, women represent 60% of university graduates, and yet only 33% of researchers currently working in European universities are women. And only 31% of those researchers are doing chemistry and are women. Only 17% are doing mathematics. And it becomes even worse when it comes to things like recognition. So Jennifer Doudna obviously won the Nobel Prize, but only 15 women have won the Science Nobel Prize since Marie Curie won it in 1903. I wonder, Walter, if you can dig a bit deeper into this issue and whether you think this misogyny that does exist in the scientific world had any uh, role to play in Doudna's career. Well, absolutely. And it's a great question. There are two people I've written about, both British, who were in the forefront of science and didn't get the recognition they deserved. I wrote about Ada Lovelace in a book that I wrote called The Innovators. And she, in the 1850s, helped develop the concept of the computer algorithm. And she gets pretty much written out of history, but a great pioneer in computer. She was Lord Byron's daughter, grew up in London. Likewise, Rosalind Franklin, who was at King's College London, She's important in the discovery of the structure of DNA. 
But what Jennifer Doudna taught me when she told me that story about Rosalind Franklin is one problem is women don't have as many role models, partly because historians have not written women into the great stories of science. There are many other headwinds facing women. I think particularly today, one of the headwinds is venture capital and business and financing. So even when Jennifer Doudna discovers how to use CRISPR technology, She's in a room with bankers and venture capitalists who are all men and tell her they're thinking of men who can run the companies for her. So there are many headwinds, which I try to explore in this book. But the main one is I want people to pick up the book and say, oh, wow, I get it. A woman can be a scientist like this. And I hope things are changing because in the undergraduate level now, 60% of the people studying biology are women. And I think especially when we give them more role models, we'll try to make this a more equitable situation. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that you've written biographies about these women as well. And, you know, we often think of the great innovators, creative geniuses in in society as being men. And some of your subjects have been about men as well, right? Einstein, Da Vinci, Steve Jobs. And it's great that you've been able to balance that out in terms of who you've been covering. But I'm also interested in this idea of the the solo genius, you know, the pioneer in medicine, because I know from my own experience that science is actually a much more collaborative and collective enterprise. And I wondered what you had learned through following Jennifer Doudna's story about how science works today and what are the, some of the pros and cons of the way that it does work in the modern world. It's become more collaborative, as you said. Creativity is a team sport, especially in science. And in my book, we go through everybody from the graduate student in Spain who first notices these clustered repeated sequences in bacteria to two people working at a yogurt company who have historical data about bacterial cultures. And all of this combines and weaves together to form the discoveries of CRISPR or to fight coronavirus, as we're doing now. But it's also true that individuals can make a big difference. And this is something that's been debated throughout history. And we biographers sometimes uh, make the mistake of trying to make it seem like, uh, you know, a guy or a gal goes to a garage or to a lab and has a light bulb moment and one person makes a discovery. So in this book, I'm trying to interweave the collaborative process, but also show that a really persistent, smart person with some brilliant insights can move the needle forward. And I hope I get the balance right, but uh, there's some colorful characters in the book, including the younger graduate students who are also part of this process. And that brings me on to my next question, actually, which is about some of these other characters in this story, because, of course, no story is simple or straightforward. And Doudna famously clashed with another scientist who was also doing some of this pioneering work into CRISPR, and that's Feng Zhang. And they clashed over the patents for CRISPR. Um, And they were arguing over basically who deserved most of the credit for its discovery. Now, We've seen this play out many times before, and certainly in the medical world in Big Pharma. I mean, right now, you know, many of us in the US and the UK are enjoying the protection that the COVID vaccine is affording us, where many uh, people in the global south are are not privy to, to those vaccines. And that's partly because of patenting laws, and partly because rich countries are hoarding vaccines at the moment. But This thing of commodifying scientific discovery, I wanted to ask you about that, Walter. What does the Doudna Zhang Clash, tell us about what's happening here. And is there a case here for publicly funded knowledge to actually be available to all of us? That's a wonderful set of questions, all of which are part of the narrative in the book, because yes, competition is a good thing. It spurs people like Jennifer Doudna and her partner, Emmanuel Schrappenchek, to work seven days a week around the clock to be the first to make the discovery and to be the first to have a patent application. And I actually believe there's a purpose to patent applications. I mean, it's, you know, millions of dollars goes into doing this research and development, and the way you get rewarded is sometimes with patents. But I've come to believe, and I think the narrative in the book shows, that after a while, this can poison the process. It sort of is a disincentive to collaboration and cooperation. 
And sometimes it becomes too bitter, as I think it did in this patent battle between Jennifer and her team and this team at the MIT Harvard Institute, the Broad Institute, led by Fong Zhang. They're still in this patent battle. One of the good things, though, is about a year ago, they both turned their attention to using the tools to fight the coronavirus, to make detection technology, antiviral technology, even help with the vaccines. And when they did that, they put all their discoveries right on public servers. They did not assert intellectual property to them. They said anybody can use these discoveries to help build weapons against the coronavirus. So like a lot of things in life, we got to balance it and we have to get it right. I don't think we should end patents and intellectual property. On the other hand, I think it's distorted some of science. And that's what I write about in this book. Now, you mentioned there the way that they were able to work together in the fight against COVID-19. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about exactly what CRISPR has added to that fight, but also to tell the audience why we're getting so excited about CRISPR at all. How is it helping, you know, doctors like me to treat disease? Well, first of all, when it comes to the coronavirus, it all stems back to the starring molecule in my book, RNA. Everybody knows about DNA. It's kind of famous. But RNA does great work. In CRISPR, it serves as the guide for the scissors to be able to cut at a targeted spot the DNA to cut out a gene. In the uh, Pfizer and Moderna and BioNTech vaccines, it serves as a guide, as a messenger to tell our cells how to make little spike proteins that will give us immunity to the real coronavirus. So that's how, many ways, how all of this is working in the fight against coronavirus. Separately, CRISPR is also being used to edit our genes when we have really bad defects, such as sickle cell anemia. We now have the first person to be cured of that. That's just a single letter in our 3 billion pairs of DNA letters that goes wrong, and now we have an edit that can fix it. Secondly, and this is more controversial, a doctor in China two and a half years ago edited early-stage embryos of what became twin girls. And that means if you do it in reproductive cells like that, they're inheritable, the edits. It's not just the patients get edited, but their children, their descendants, the entire human species now has an edit. That caused a lot of shock. But what he did was he edited them so that they didn't have a receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. And even though people were shocked and said, well, that wasn't necessary and he shouldn't have done that, now, as we're looking at viruses and receptors, we'll probably open our minds a little bit more to saying, someday, if we can safely edit the human species, to be less susceptible to viruses, maybe we should do so. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I found this book so compelling, because the science itself is breathtaking, but the potential for what could happen when this is used more broadly, I think, is even more uh, breathtaking and can be frightening. The reason that I think that this needs to be a discussion in wider society is because it's really bringing up some really meaty moral dilemmas. Now, you mentioned He Jiankui in 2018, who, you know, edited human embryos. And, you know, this led to the birth of twin girls. Really, I wanted to ask you, Walter, given that you've had this longer view, I guess, of history and science, particularly thinking back to Leonardo da Vinci, how significant a moment do you think this was? And really, where do you think this leaves us for going forward? Well, as you said, we need to have a broad social discussion about when to use these tools, which, by the way, is a lot of the time. We have a lot of bad genetic problems or cancers that could be solved by this tool. But we need a broad social discussion, and that's one reason I wrote the book. I think it's fine to have broad social discussions like of GMOs, but it's helpful to actually know what a gene is and a genetically modified organism or what gene editing is. So I want people to feel they understand not all the details of the science, but the ramifications of the science. So we can all figure out, let's use it to cure diseases. Let's use it 
to fight cancers or fight viruses, but maybe we should draw the line at enhancing our children, at giving them traits that will give them some advantages over other children. And that's where I think we have to have this discussion. Absolutely. And I think one of the concerns that was raised by that particular case of the the twin girls is that we had a situation there where we had a rogue scientist effectively tinkering away in a lab, smashing through all of the norms and laws that we have within science, meddling in the human genome, effectively to feed his own ego and scientific curiosity. And the worry is that many more dangerous applications of CRISPR could be in store for us. And so what if other people are experimenting with CRISPR in ways that threaten human life? And what if they're using CRISPR to enhance human traits? And my concern is ushering in a new era of genetic inequality. Well, as soon as Jennifer invented this technology with Emmanuel Charpentier and others, she had a nightmare. And it's that somebody wanted to learn about the use of this technology, and she goes into the room, and it's Hitler. And so she begins the process of gathering people from around the world, scientists, but also religious leaders, political leaders, to say, how are we going to put some rules of the road on the use of this technology? And you're right, it's rogue doctors can do it. But the good news is China is part of these discussions, and they put the doctor on trial, and he's in jail now. So we can try to form an international consensus once we figure it out. In England, Robin Lovell Badge is at the forefront of this, along with many people at the Royal Academy of Sciences, also at the National Academy of Sciences in the U.S., and Dong Ching-Pei, somebody who's in my book who I interview, who's at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. So I do think it's possible for us to create a consensus like we do on many things, the use of drugs, trafficking in elephant tusks, whatever you want to pick, where we can't stop it totally, but we can have sort of an international consensus of here's where we're going to use it and here's where not. I wonder, Walter, in all of the work that you did in researching this book, and it is very, very well researched, I have to say, you're not a scientist. And coming at it from this perspective as a layperson. Were, were there times when you felt uncomfortable about where CRISPR could go, or, or maybe even in how the technology was developed? Yes, there were times I felt uncomfortable at the beginning, and that's why I threw myself into this. And it's not that hard, the science. You, of course, understand it extraordinarily well because of your background. But the ramifications of the science, if you, you know, read the narrative, you can say, okay, I get it. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. Now let's ask the question, what should we do? And at first, like Jennifer Doudna and some of the others, I said, okay, let's tap on the brakes. Let's tap on the brakes. But whether it be the coronavirus crisis or meeting people who are being cured of things like sickle cell or Tay-Sachs or blindness or other things because of CRISPR, I realize that every creature on this planet, large and small, uses all the tricks in their playbook to try to survive, and it's only natural that we would do so as well. And we have the moral ability to say, and we should do it cautiously and carefully. Every day, and I'm not kidding, I mean, I can pick up my phone and show you, I get four or five emails from people who've read the book who say, I want to show you the picture of my 12-year-old daughter or my nine-year-old grandboy, and, you know, he or she has cystic fibrosis or has this rare genetic... And they say he's going to die in three years. Can you put me in touch with Jennifer Doudna? So even as we say we don't want to do, as you put it, allow the rich to buy better genes and have a super-enhanced genetic elite, we also don't want to be so afraid of this technology that we quit curing kids and people who have deep disabilities or problems because of genetic flaws, or they have cancer. Absolutely. And just to kind of develop that idea a bit further, obviously, I'm a pediatrician, and I come across children with all sorts of genetic problems all of the time. And I find myself wondering in this context about where we draw the line. And I wonder whether actually Jennifer Doudna had a view on this, because it's one thing to be talking about, you know, potentially helping people to cure really debilitating conditions, as you've just said. 
But there's another when we think about potentially erasing what we consider normal human characteristics, you know, things like quirky sense of humor, for instance, or even conditions like autism. Now, I wonder whether Jennifer Doudna, in your work with her, ever revealed what she actually thinks about what could be in store for us on those lines. Oh, absolutely. And I reveal in the book or discuss in the book the evolution of her thinking. Because, you know, people's minds change as they see certain things. But let's take the categories you talked about because they're exactly right. Which is, first of all, let's focus on real genetic diseases, things that are particularly bad and that very few people can say, okay, we want to keep that in society. Like Huntington's or cystic fibrosis or multiple, uh, muscular dystrophy, things that are truly painful, debilitating, and deadly diseases. Yes, we'll probably want to get rid of those. Although one of the kids in my book is a guy named David Sanchez, who is 17 years old and loves playing basketball, except for when he doubles over in pain because he has sickle cell. And when they tell him that maybe we can edit the sickle cell out of his children, he says, that would be great. But then he says, I don't know. Sickle cell actually forged my character. So maybe we should let it be up to the kid when the kid is born. And then I go back to him a few months later he says, no, I've decided I would want to edit out of my children. And so we all have first thoughts, second thoughts, third thoughts. But you ask the other good question, which is, what about things like deafness? Well, if you and I were at a uh, clinic and they said, we, your kid will have congenital deafness, but we can fix it, we'd probably check the box that says, yes, you're a pediatrician. If somebody comes to you and says, my child is deaf, and you say, we know how to fix it, you would probably do so. But it does diminish the diversity of the human species. In the balcony right behind me, you know, out of those big doors is Royal Street, New Orleans. And I remember sitting out there looking at people tall and short and fat and skinny and gay and straight and trans and different colors, but also people from a university known as Gallaudet for the deaf, where they're all signing. Well, do we want to edit that out of the species? I hate to say it because it'll hurt the sales of the book. I don't have a last chapter that says, here's the seven easy answers. But we walk through that question of even things you and I might call disabilities, such as congenital deafness. To what extent do we really want to edit that out of our species? And the reader, I hope, will decide. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. There's just one other topic that I want to touch on. And because, you know, CRISPR does raise significant socialist issues in relation to people, but actually a less well-known application of the technology is that it's currently being used right now for the production of genetically modified food. Walter, I don't know how much you know about this, but how do you think people might react in the audience if they knew that some of this food is already out there and is widely available? But also, what are the potential ecological ramifications of this kind of genetically modified food being out there in the environment? Right. And of course, that's a big issue in Europe and to a slightly lesser extent, I think, in Britain and a lesser extent in the United States. But it was a French yogurt-making company, Danisco, that have these two scientists who very early on discover what CRISPR actually does for bacteria, which is protects them against virus infection. Now, if you're a Danisco and you make yogurt and cheese starter cultures, those bacteria, that's billions of dollars a year as an industry, their biggest threat is viruses. So they patented and they used CRISPR in order to help make sure that the yogurt culture doesn't get destroyed by viruses. So I think we have to look at each particular case of it, whether it's golden rice or new types of corn, but also better bacteria cultures. So if you eat, uh, you know, yogurt, I think, I'm not sure about exactly how it is in the UK right now, I am almost certain that part of the uh, way it gets developed is by developing bacterial cultures that are more resistant to viruses. I think we have to think it through, but if we're creating something that is done in the wild, meaning bacteria do it, we're creating an organism that already exists, but we're, I mean, we're tweaking an organism so it becomes something that has already existed in the wild— then we're safer. If we create things that have enhanced characteristics that never existed, we got the unintended consequences to worry about. But I'm open-minded on these things, meaning I do think it's important, even in an era of climate change, to use it for agriculture, to, for carbon capture and sequestration, maybe to be more drought-resistant. And these are balancing acts. And I The only thing I object to is when people have knee-jerk opinions at one extreme or the other, and they don't even know what a gene is or, you know, what the yogurt makers did so that they can understand these questions that we all have to face with an open mind. When we, in, in time to come, look back, you know, at this era and we look back at Jennifer Doudna, do you think she'll be viewed as a hero or do you think there is a chance that she might be viewed as a villain. Well, I think she'll be viewed as a hero because she throws herself so deeply into the moral issues we've discussed. And she has been really at the center of this wonderful international group that's saying, this is something that exists in nature. I mean, CRISPR's been around for a billion years, as I've said. But let's be careful how we use it. And already, I mean, we're seeing people get cured of these dreadful diseases. And if we could conquer cancer with immunotherapies that are more resistant to the cancer cells turning off our immune systems, I think this is a godsend. Well, Walter, thank you for indulging me and my questions so far. I'm going to move on to uh, the audience questions. Since you were just talking about diseases, I'm going to take this question first, which is a question about basically wanting to know a little bit more about what CRISPR could solve. So they're asking whether there is the potential for curing things as complex and as big as cancer or dementia. Do you have a sense of whether that is actually in the pipeline? Well, yeah, both those are in the pipeline. And I think if you look at what CRISPR can do, we have to look at what will be a progression over probably the next 30 or 40 years. Already, we've been able to cure sickle cell anemia. That's a single gene mutation. Likewise, other blood diseases similar have been done in Germany. In China, which is a little ahead of the West in this, they're doing it for cancer, 
which means ways to protect immunotherapies so that the cancers can't defeat it or turn it off. It's already being used to fix a form of congenital blindness that is a single gene mutation. Now, as I said, many of these things involve just single genes or very few genes, such as sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, multiple sclerosis. There are 7,000, I think, simple genetic diseases like that. Those will be done or are already being done in the next few years. Then you get to more complicated things, such as muscle mass. That's not all that complicated. There's a gene that regulates myostatin that regulates the growing of muscles in cattle and in other animals. We've already used CRISPR to regulate that so the cattle grow stronger. At some point, the athletic directors and the Tottenham uh, football coach and pushy parents are going to say, what about my kids? Can I make them be double-muscled? I wouldn't go there yet, but that's a pretty simple fix. Then you get to more complicated fixes. That includes Alzheimer's and other memory loss. But we do know some of the genes that dispose to Alzheimer's and genes that lead to neural networks and neurons. And eventually we can do that. And if you're doing that, you can also probably enhance memory of a typical person, which is, I think, crossing a line we shouldn't cross. Then you get to the much more complicated things, like bipolar disease, schizophrenia, or for that matter, metal processing power, even what we may call intelligence, or in this context, intelligence squared. And that's multiple genes that don't determine these things, but dispose us along with environmental factors and others. And those are decades down the road, although in a few decades we'll be able to make some of the tweaks and do some things connected to that. And that's why I think we and our children should read about this and start the ethical conversations now. Absolutely. I have to say, Walter, your knowledge of science is very impressive for someone who is a historian. <laughs> I have to be honest, it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. That's and so given nice that of you, you to say because it, you're, <laughs> no, you're honestly, a medical it's, it's re- doctor. <laughs> But I think what you said there, that last point about educating the public and, you know, even the medical profession about the nuances of this genetic technology, it's it's absolutely prime. And on that note, there's a question here, um, which is, I, and I wonder whether you would just mind doing us the honor of a quick reminder of what CRISPR actually stands for. And I'm going to combine this with another question, which is, what do you envision, envision the next step beyond CRISPR for genetics to be? Right. Well, CRISPR was first really discovered by a graduate student in Spain, a wonderful guy named Francis Mojico. His pictures in my book. And they were calling it various things. And these are clustered, repeated sequences that he kept finding in the bacteria he was studying and other organisms. And so they were calling tandem repeats or whatever. And finally, he said he wanted to name it. So he's driving home one day, and he comes up with the name CRISPR, which basically stands for uh, clustered, regularly interspaced, uh, short palindropic repeats. I'm not sure I could do that again (laughs) from my head. Uh, But it wasn't like he said, okay, I want to name it that complicated name. He wanted to kind of reverse engineer a name that would come out CRISPR with the E-drop so it would have a futuristic sheen. He gets to his home to his wife and he says, I've just figured out the name. I'm going to call it CRISPR. And she says, no, that sounds like a name for a puppy dog. You know, come here, CRISPR, CRISPR, come on. But he named it CRISPR and that's uh, what it stands for. And and it's stuck, and it is it is a catchy name. And 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 what do you think that the next step for this kind of genetic technology might be? At the end of my book, I go to these new CRISPR conferences they're having every year. It's amazing how fast things are going. For example, there's a new form of editing that takes CRISPR another step forward called base editing. And if CRISPR is like a scissors that can cut our DNA, base editing is like a pencil that can change one letter, you know, change an A to a T or something like that in our genetic sequence. There's another one that's called prime editing, which can, ch- which can edit large chunks of DNA and replace it without even making a cut in the DNA, put replacements into it. So this technology is speeding ahead. Brilliant. Thank you so much. 
There's another question here about, I guess, the future and what might happen to medical treatments in general. Longer term, what do you think the threat is to big pharma by technologies like CRISPR? I mean, are we basically going to put the pharma- pharmaceutical companies out of business? Well, I think that one of the things the coronavirus uh, battle showed us and what CRISPR is showing us is that small, nimble startups are usually in the vanguard of science. When we talk about the messenger RNA vaccines, for example, you know, we have BioNTech, a very small startup, a pretty small startup in Germany that was first out of the box. And then they partnered with Big Pharma, meaning Pfizer. Likewise, Moderna, a pretty small company that didn't have any approved drugs based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, it came out with the other one. So these nimble companies mean that as we use RNA and make molecules to become almost like microchips, where we can reprogram the molecule the way we do a microchip, that will incent startups. Obviously, as you know, as well as anybody and your listeners know, at Oxford University, another form of not RNA, but uh, genetic engineering, was used to create the Oxford vaccine. And they partnered with Big Pharma, in this case, AstraZeneca. But I do think it'll be useful to have these startups that can try these new things, because you can just do them with a computer in a lab over a weekend. You can code the messenger RNA, which is what happens at Moderna and BioNTech. And I think in terms of policy, and I don't want to venture there because I'm not very good as a lawyer, I think it means we want to keep the antitrust enforcement at least vigorous enough that young entrepreneurial startups can come along and not be crushed by big pharma. So on that note of regulation and kind of those bigger structures around scientific discovery and the way that these things are used, there's a question from Sarah here about whether you can talk to how we can regulate CRISPR. And you mentioned international regulation earlier, but do you think there's a role for the World Health Organization, for instance? The World Health Organization has already convened a group with a friend of mine, Peggy Hamburg, who's in the book as one of the co-chairs. And uh, I think there are people from both Britain and other places as part of it to say, what should the general guidelines be? So yes, the WHO has a role to play. There's two processes going on, the WHO process and a parallel process that I call the National Academies process, which Jennifer Doudna, and you'll read about it, I mean, it's in the book quite a bit, and that involves the Royal Academy in England and the National Academy in America and the Chinese and Guangzhou Academies over in China, and they're doing the more technical guidelines. As I said, I don't think we're going to be able to keep the genie, or for that matter, the gene, in the bottle... (laughs) But what we have to do is just prevent it from, you know, becoming something that's widespread. If we can stop 95% of it, that would be enough. And that's like everything from shoplifting to regulating elephant tusks or trafficking or whatever it may be. So I do think we can do it. But when I say we, I mean we, meaning you and me and Sarah, who asked the question, and everybody else. Because it's not just the regulators and politicians who'll do it. I think as a society, we have to say, here's our moral consensus. And so it won't just be regulations that prevent people from buying better, buying genes that make their children taller. As a society, we'll say things like, you know, that's not done. And we do that, even with the vaccines. We say, hey, it's not done to have a black market and to jump the queue and getting a vaccine. And I would have thought maybe people, there'd be a widespread jumping of the queue. But no, as a society, when we say, here's what we believe, we can use everything from shame to pride to say, let's follow the rules here. And at the moment, we're not going to let rich people just go around and make their kids taller. So... I think, again, related to that, there is a specific question here with a little quote, in fact, from Satya Nadella, who once said that it's not the time to think about what technology can do, but about what it should do. And this audience member's question is, since the technology is already out there, how can we make sure that other international players don't use it for nefarious purposes? And I think what this is getting to is what you were alluding to there, which is this idea of international cooperation on this single issue and to work together collectively. And 
you've already alluded to this and maybe and you do say more about this in the book what is already happening in, in order to make sure that different countries across the world are working together as opposed to against each other well as i said the who and the academies of science are all doing things like this which is really good uh secondly i think that uh we have to have some international treaties on this at some point for example tony blinken the secretary of state of the united states just met with his chinese counterpart in alaska as you may have read they had a lot that they disagreed on it was a contentious meeting but when you go to meetings like that you also have to have part of the ledger is where can we work together and crispr and gene editing was on that list and china is actually working with the uk the united states europe to try to do a consensus. So far Russia is a bit of an outlier and we have to worry about that. Putin keeps talking about maybe we should use it to create super soldiers. But I think this is just like whether it's uh control of nuclear weapons or control of climate change. It's a difficult diplomatic issue, but we have to understand it, which once again is what I hope this book will help a little bit in uh, in making happen. Well, speaking of nefarious purposes, our next question is about how real you think the risk is of people using the gene editing for purely aesthetic purposes. So I think one of the concerns that we have and we've mentioned here is things like height or eye color, or possibly even skin color. How likely is it, do you think, that CRISPR might be used for those kinds of purposes? Well, uh, technologically that will be on the easier end of the spectrum some of that. Meaning your eye color is pretty much determined genetically. There's not a whole lot of environmental reasons that you and I both have brown eyes or something <laughs> or for that matter brown hair. Or I I used to have brown hair, trust me. Uh, and so yeah, you can change eye color and hair color and that's cosmetic and it falls in the category of enhancements that I believe are unnecessary and we shouldn't go there at first there are other people in my book including the great geneticist George Church at Harvard who says to me excuse me if somebody wants to have you know the kid have a particular hair color or a particular eye color where's the harm in that you know we do things like that so i don't try to preach in the book but you can sense my own feelings which is this is not where we should be putting our resources but yes people will use it for cosmetic purposes and worse yet they'll use it for enhancements by that i mean they want their kids to be 6 inches taller than other kids and that's where i really think we have to have regulations because we do not want to encode the inequality that exists in our society and make it worse and make it encoded so that whether it be as in the book brave new world or the movie gatica we create a genetic elite. There's just two more questions and I hope you've got time for these two. And and this one actually relates to directly what to what to what you were saying there, which is this idea that we might want to literally delete communities from from our world. And this is um, in relation to disabled communities and the concern of whether their voices are going to be heard in this conversation. Do you have a sense for how involved and how open scientists are to the the voice of the d- disabled community in this particular discussion an incredibly important question that cuts by the way both ways in my book i there's a professor garland thompson who uh, she's a wonderful bioethicist who was born with a genetic condition i'll call it some would call it a disability meaning a withered arm and other things and she has become friends with people who have other genetic conditions and they don't like the fact that society says those are disabilities and so they're at the table now saying don't edit us out and by the way the uh deaf community is there saying the hearing enabled community meaning people like us with uh typical hearing abilities shouldn't discriminate against the deaf community on the other hand if you're a parent you might want to say if i have a choice i don't want my child to be born deaf those are the d- discussions we have to have So at the table and I've been pushing for this and it's already happened. You have to have members of what we might call the disabled community, you know, people deaf or blind or with genetic challenges. But also we need to have them at the table because a lot of those communities do want treatments. They do want the ability to say 
I'm deaf, but I don't want my children to be deaf. So we have to debate it. We have to try to leave it to some individual choice. But that's complicated because the unborn child doesn't have a choice. Do we leave it to the parents to say, I'd prefer to have a deaf child or I'd prefer not to have a deaf child? So as I say, there are no easy answers in this book. But I want people on both sides of what you could call the disabled community, those who are in favor of using it to help their families avoid the genetic conditions they have, and people in the disabled community say, don't treat us as being disabled. Treat us as members of society, and don't try to edit us out. Gosh, this is a fascinating discussion, and I'm sure we could carry on talking for the rest of the evening. There's one final question, which actually I had, it had occurred to me too, because I thought while I was reading this book, how amazing that you have been able to dig into this in so much detail. I mean, it's effectively like you had to learn it all yourself. How do you choose the subjects for your biographies? And who's next on your list? <laughs> I don't know who's next. I promise <laughs> you I'm not being coy and uh, I'll think about it over the next few months. I choose it because I look at people who have been innovators, revolutionaries, creative whether it was the early scientific revolution that in some ways starts with Leonardo or the physics revolution, that's Einstein, the digital revolution, that's Steve Jobs and uh, Ada Lovelace, and now the life sciences revolution. And they tend to be people that are curious, curious about basic science, curious about all aspects of nature, whether you're Leonardo, Ben Franklin, or Jennifer Doudna, you like math and music, you like art and anatomy. You know, you like everything from anatomy to zoology, and you have a foot in the humanities, just like Steve Jobs did. So those are the people I think are the most creative because they see the patterns across nature. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Walter. And thank you for the audience, for their questions, which has made this such an interesting discussion. Thank you for being with us tonight, Walter, and for sharing your new book, which is The Codebreaker, Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race, which and is And Dr. Singh, now. let me say, your questions were great. I truly appreciated <laughs> them. Well, it was an absolute pleasure, and I've learned a lot through this discussion. So thank you so much, Walter, and good luck. Thank you so very much. Bye-bye.